Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're starting a new book in our Torah study. This week, um, Jewish people around the world, Orthodox, uh, Messianic Jews, they're all starting the study of numbers. And on the list is numbers one through four this week. And we're going to get to that, but I wanted to say a few last things about Leviticus and about the law. Um, part of the uh, end of Leviticus is the Holiness Code, where it was just a list of like things we shouldn't do. And it's there as a book of the law to help us get our lives right, to help us be righteous. So, we will be sinless before God. At least it was during the Old Covenant. Now, many people ask me, why do we still study Old Testament law if we're not Jewish? Why do we still study the Old Testament at all? The books of the law and all the old stories... Was it there for us? Now Jesus came and said he came to fulfill it, to give it its real purpose. He didn't come to throw it away, even though he came to bring us grace. We're not made righteous. We're not, we don't get our seat in heaven by following the law perfectly. Because no man can follow the law perfectly. The law there, the law kills, is what the Bible says. The letter kills because no one can follow it perfectly. So, why do we use it? We use it in three ways as Christians, as New Covenant believers. We use it as a mirror, a map, and a curb. The mirror is when the law is held up to us, held up, the Holy Spirit will. We'll bring this uh, Old Testament passage up and show it to us so we can see the sin in our life that we need to repent of so we can be righteous, so we can be declared righteous. And we have to ask for forgiveness for things. But the Holy Spirit will use this Old Testament law to say, see, these are things, places you're falling short. You're still marked by these things. Just like when you look in a mirror and you may see how your makeup is smudged or you may see that you've got dirt or, or smut or some sort of uh, ashes on your face. You see the marks and blemishes on your face that you need to wash away. You need the, the hair is out of place. You have to comb. <laughs> All these things are the we see in the mirror. Things that are out of place in our life, and the Holy Spirit uses the law like that. The Holy Spirit will take the Old Testament law, maybe the one about adultery, and hold it up to us and says, "Thou shalt not commit adultery." Our immediate response will be, 
that I haven't committed adultery. But then the Holy Spirit will remind us. But remember what Jesus said. If you do it in your heart, it's like doing it for real. If you sit there and obsess over this, if you sit there and spend time with this, then it's like there's no difference. If you commit the sin in your heart, it's the same as committing the sin outright with your body. So you need to ask for forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit will use that mirror of the law to drive us toward righteous living. To drive us towards a life that will be pleasing to God by showing us the things we need to repent of. Showing us the dirt, the sin that's still in our lives. Now the map is the directions of how to live a good life. So the law shows us where we're messing up. The map shows us the right way to go. And there's the not just the law, but also narrative stories about friendship, morality, and brotherly love are all in Old Testament. All in the books of the law. And we need to follow those directions because the law will lead us to a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And so that's how the law is like a map. And finally, the curb. By hiding the word in our heart, we know what is right and wrong. We know what to avoid. And while we're even told that we can train our children, our youth, we can train them by hiding the word in their heart. If we teach them what is right, they will not depart from it. Because the Holy Spirit will set a curb up. And what's a curb? A curb is like the railing that keeps your car on the road. And so if you uh, get out of hand, if you got um, going too far, that curb is there to stop you. And that's what the law is for New Testament believers. It can also be that curb that stops us from going off the rails. The curb that keeps us on the road keeps us moving in the right direction so we don't go off the deep end so we don't injure ourselves or others so that, that we stay on the right path so the curb keeps us going on the right path by showing us the life that God wants us to have by showing us the righteous living by showing us the restrictions of things we shouldn't be doing and those are reasons why we still study the Old Testament. Still study the Old Testament law is because the law is still useful to us as New Covenant grace-believing Christians as a mirror and a map and a curve. Mirror shows us when we have done wrong. The map help, helps us to do right. 
and the curb helps us helps us avoid doing wrong. And that's why we still study. So next in my Torah portion list after Leviticus is the book of Numbers. And uh, first section is Numbers 1 through 4. And it's called Numbers because there's two big focal points in the book are um, census rolls that God told Moses to take. And it's taking a number from the tribe, how many people were old enough to fight, and um, how many people um, should be in camps, and uh, what to do about the Levites. And so that's what uh, Numbers starts out with, is a great census. And we're going to look at the first four verses here, Numbers 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai and in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names Every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, and each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And so the first words of this Torah portion are in... um, Hebrew is Bamidbar, Bamidbar. And I know my pronunciation is horrible because I haven't had Hebrew in years, but it means in the wilderness or in the desert. Now, the wilderness is a thing that keeps popping up in not only the history of Israel, but the history of all believers. The wilderness is a place of trial and temptation. It's a place for the lost and lonely, a time of searching, improving, and preparation, getting ready for God's path, getting ready God's plans. That's what the wilderness is, and it's it's we start out the Bible by looking in the garden, and now we're spending some time in the wilderness. And there's a big difference there. The garden is cultivated. It's lush. Its growth is planned out and orderly. But the wilderness is not planted by man. It's wild and it's barren and it's chaotic and things are everywhere and nowhere. And that's how the garden and the wilderness differ. And one of the reasons why it's sometimes translated in some Bibles is desert is because there's a usually not water where do you need it to be and there's uh, and there's not food where do you need it to be have you ever gone camping and you've been hungry and you look around you and you're like there's all these trees 
and grass and plants. I'm surrounded by vegetation, but there's nothing for me to eat. There's like grass for rabbits. There's there's berries for birds that may be poisonous to us. There's, There's tons of stuff around us, but there's nothing for us. And that's the way the wilderness was. The wilderness was like that. And that's where the children of Israel found themselves after the second year of leaving Egypt. Now, they're going to be spending a lot of time in this wilderness because, like I said, it's a place of trial and temptation and preparation. And we'll see that how they've had problems. They have problems with uh, passing these trials of temptation and preparation. And it's also a place for um, for searching and proving. Now, uh, we said that the wilderness is a place that keeps showing up in the history of God's people. John the Baptizer. He sets up his ministry in the wilderness. And it's, he's, uh, it was prophesied before he was born that there will be a voice in the wilderness making way the path for the Messiah. Just the lonely voice out there calling in the wilderness. And that's what he did. He went into the wilderness and he preached the kingdom and he baptized people. And he kept pointing the way that the Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts. The Messiah is coming. The kingdom is coming. The Messiah is coming. And that's what he was doing when Jesus walked into his camp. And he got to baptize Jesus. And when the skies opened up and and the dove, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended and he heard the voice of the Heavenly Father. John knew his mission was complete, that he had been out there and he prepared the way. He prepared that path for Jesus to walk into. And Elijah, he went into the wilderness. And so did Jesus. Um, John the Baptizer prepared the path for Jesus going into ministry. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was led into the wilderness after his baptism. The Spirit took him to the wilderness as a a direct reflection of the book of Numbers. A direct reflection. You see, the Israelites faced temptation. And so would Jesus. But he wouldn't fail. Before entering the promised land, the Israelites had to spend years wandering. Years wandering through the wilderness because they kept failing their trials. Now Jesus, the Messiah, the true Israelite, the, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the great eternal high priest, he was able to go in and face the trials and pass them. 
and he started his kingdom building ministry after he left the wilderness. And he faced the devil himself in the wilderness. And he fought him with the word of God. Going back some time to Elijah the prophet, Elijah was very depressed when he entered the kingdom, when he entered the wilderness. And I'm going to read a little from 1 Kings 19. During this time, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, or he had been Elijah had been working against the evil Jezebel and Ahab. He'd been opposing their prophets. And sometimes he felt like he was the last, the last one left that was true to God. The last prophet left that still believed in Jehovah. But it says that after he had killed her prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So he said, You may have killed the prophets of Baal with the sword, but I will do the same to you. And after all of this, he uh, became afraid. He was, he was tired and afraid and depressed. And he went into the wilderness. It says this, it says, uh, 19 verse 4, that he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a, milita- uh, a solitary green tree. He asked, that he might die. Is it enough now, Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. But suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. And he looked, and there in his head was a cake, a little uh, cake of bread baked on hot stones, in a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat. Otherwise the journey will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away from me. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountains before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains 
and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. And the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mouth. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram, and, I, and you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nemeshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shepheth of Abel Mahoah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, thus Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he set out before there and found Elisha, who was plowing. There was twelve yoke oxen, and oxen ahead of him, and he was the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle over him. He left oxen and ran after Elijah. And that's how he called the prophet Elijah. But you see here, the, the wilderness was a bad sign for Israelites. They kept failing their trials. And... Elijah, he felt like he was being a failure. He thought he was the last of the prophets. But God, he tells him that there's thousands more whose knees haven't bowed to Baal. But he was so depressed after doing this work. He just wanted to lay down and die. He made his way into the wilderness. And God sent an angel there to him to minister him, to prepare him. So the wilderness became a place of preparation for Elijah. And the wilderness is all these things. It's a place of temptation. It's a place of preparation. It's a place of not knowing. It's a place of trial. It's a place of searching. And it's a place of hope renewed. And as we work through numbers, I hope that we can all see that. And one final thing in Numbers one seventeen, Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named and on the first day of the second month they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans by fathers' houses according to the number of names from twenty year olds and upwards head by head and the Lord commanded Moses so he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. So why did God want this census? Why did God want the census? 
There's a um, ancient Jewish commentary called a Midrash. And it is rabbis would answer Bible questions with parables and poems. And then one Midrash for numbers for this census. For why God wanted everyone numbered in the wilderness. They said this parable. There is a jewelry merchant that sells beautiful beads and colorful stones by weight. But he keeps his diamonds and pearls in a display case. So the so the the pretty but worthless um stones and glass beads, they're just like in a bucket. And you know, you can weigh them out by the pound and buy some. But if you want like real precious diamonds and pearls, they're locked up in a display case and each one is numbered and tagged. Each one has its story written, its cut, its clarity, its carrot, the color of the pearl, the waters that the pearl was harvested from, because each one is precious. Each one is valuable. Now when Jehovah Almighty told Moses and Aaron to get those people together and number them, he was doing so for his display case. These were his people, his chosen people. That's why they were numbered. Because just like how the the merchant only numbered his most precious, most valuable diamonds and pearls, that's what God was doing to his people. Numbering them. Numbering his beloved people. Now Jesus... He sorts through us. He sorts through all those beads. Jesus came and sorted through all those big piles of glass beads to find us. He finds us in the wilderness when we're lonely, when we're depressed, when we're tired, when we're trying to find a way out, when we're, when we're going through trials and we keep failing the trials. And when we're sitting there on the banks of the river preparing the way, Jesus finds us. And he puts us in his display case as he comes to choose us, to call us to pay for our sins with his blood. Amen. Now, next time in the book of Numbers, we're going to be going over one of my favorite passages. And it is Aaron's blessing from Numbers chapter 6. And I wanted to close this by sharing it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be precious to you. Lord, turn his face towards you and give you peace and grace. Amen. And may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, 
I would love for you to come visit with us in person at First Christian Church in Greenwood. And if you want to know more about what it takes, uh, what the Bible really says about being saved, or you want to know more about baptism and why we think it's important, you can get in touch with me, Christopher Crawford, or... um, uh, the uh, head preacher there, Earl Winfrey. Um, you should be able to find us on Facebook, no problem. And it's First Christian Church, Greenwood, South Carolina. Thank you.